Take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. My name is Rachel Gilmore. Welcome to our latest episode of Field Preachers. I'm super excited about our guests today. They are releasing a brand new book called From Franchise to Local Dive, Multiplying Your Church by Discovering Your Contextual Flavor. So um, I have the pleasure of introducing you guys to Jason and Roz. Hi. Rachel, it's good to be with you. Hey, Rachel. Thanks for having us. Hey, Roz, um, for those listening in who haven't had the chance to hear you speak, I mean, I don't know how many conferences you've been at, but um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. Individually. You want to go, go first, Roz? You go for it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I got my start in ministry um, at a church called Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church, uh, which when I got there... Um, was just growing into kind of a mega church. And so I was uh, one of the first media uh, people on staff there and we saw some amazing growth. And after a few years of um, continuing to innovate and do things there, I just felt a strong call to help small and medium sized churches do more creative things, uh, worship that um, I like to say worship that is more about Monday than Sunday. So how do we create an experience on, on Sunday that, that moves into Monday? So uh, Franchise of Local Dive is uh, the tenth book I have uh, been involved with writing, and I do um, about forty seminars a year on creative worship, on guest readiness, and now we have a new seminar for the new book. And uh, I do a lot of consulting, coaching, and still do media production. So that's me in a nutshell. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> Thanks, what doesn't Jason do? Yeah. I'm, I'm impressed to be your friend. Um, Jason is my hero. I'll just say that. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm I'm Roz, and I have plant. I'm a church planter at heart. I've planted three congregations. I've restarted two. I've um, I coach and I write, and of course, pastor. And then also, I serve in academia, where I'm the dean of the chapel at United Theological Seminary, director of the Leadership Center, adjunct faculty and uh, lead a doctoral group as well. So in my spare time, wow. I hang out with Jason. <laughs> you are both my heroes. Holy moly. And when I grow up, I want to be just like Roz. So. <laughs> mutual admiration here. Do you have spare time? What does that look like? No. <laughs> well, now, now all of a sudden with this um, coronavirus, I've got way more spare time than I would like to have. But uh, yeah, it's, spare time is hard to come by. So random question, because you both seem to be just slight, slight overachievers and intense in terms of all the projects you're involved with. Have you ever done Enneagram? Like, what is your Enneagram number? You know, that's one I have not done. I've done just about everything else, um, but uh, I'm late to the game on that one. <laughs> Roz, have you done that? I have. Um, let me remember. <laughs> What are you? How about you tell us yours, and then I'll I'll look mine up real quick. I have it written down. Yeah. Oh, really? It's so fun. I've been fascinated asking church planters um, what their enneagram number is because I find sometimes a correlation between their number and then the kind of plant that is most organic um, to them, the one that brings them the most joy. So I'm a three, which is like 
an achiever, someone that likes a lot of work. So hearing your list, I was like, this sounds amazing. Wow, <laughs> you're so busy. But um, Well, my, uh, I can tell you my strength finder, uh, achiever is uh, number one, uh, or no, maximizer is number one, uh, achiever is number two. So okay. um, I must be up there somewhere, I think. I, think I, I found mine. What are um, you, Russ? I'm a three. Does not surprise me. You're not supposed to guess someone's number, but uh, <laughs> hearing your resume, it was pretty apparent. So, um, I think my homework when this is over is to go do it so I can answer I that question you. the next time I'm asked. Please do and let me know if you have a wing, okay? It's so uh, fun. Right. We'll have to do a whole like Enneagram podcast next, guys. Oh, that sounds like Great. fun. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's dive into this book a little bit. Tell me, who is this book for? Who should be reading this? I think it's for any pastor, lay person, staff person, um, whether you're in a church plant, you're revitalizing, starting something new or revitalizing something old, or you're going into the multi-site context. So I think anybody can get something out of it. I would add, uh, and I think Roz is absolutely right, you know, starting starting something new, revitalizing something old. And then I've got a church right now that I'm coaching that is merging two congregations and trying to do kind of a vital merger restart kind of idea. And he has told me that this has been a good guidebook for them and trying to figure out how do you take the DNA of one church and another church and kind of bring them together and form something new. So um, it, it does have kind of a, a broad audience, I would say. Yeah. I mean, you could uh, leadership teams as well can really look at the questions and that can help you develop a ministry plan for you know, the next year. Absolutely. It's just like one of many things that I loved about this book that as I was reading through it, you literally have like along with the chapters, if you're an established church, if you're an organic community, like this is for you, read this. And and you're right. You touch on how this um, like emphasis on being a local dive as opposed to a franchise can be beneficial in, in a variety of contexts, which was super helpful because I think, um, as a church planter myself, a struggle I've run into is folks would say, oh, well, your church plant is growing. Why is it mine? Let me just add a band. Let me just add lighting. If I just do X, Y, and Z, people will come. And that's not true. So tell, tell me a little bit about, you know, what is this book? Tell me, what's this whole local flavor dive approach to ministry? Sure. Well, um, I would say first and foremost, uh, while the book probably favors the idea of local dive more than franchise, we are certainly not saying franchises are bad and local dives are good. We think that the best franchises have figured out to have a local dive feel, even in being a franchise. Um, you know, many churches that are growing have something worth franchising, but you still have to figure out how do you connect with your local context with a different community. And we even got to tell, um, we've had some friends that have told some vulnerable stories in the book where it didn't work and they tried to just take the franchise uh, to town. So um, I would say that Roz and I kept in the, in the back of our minds throughout uh, our conversations in preparing for this book, when we've done seminars on it and in writing it, that we didn't want to just create a series of recipes for someone to pick and implement. But this was more about how can we help people ask the right questions, look at a series of really great churches that have done it well, and they figured out their recipe, and what can we learn from the questions they've asked, 
and then form our own new answers based on uh, those those questions. So it's not meant to be a a prescriptive book as much as it is um, helping you form your own you know indigenous recipe that will will help you grow your church. I mean, when you think about it, how many times do we go to a conference and people are pulling out their you know, latest and greatest. And we say, man, that's so great. I'm going to go do that at my church. And either A, we don't have the resources, B, it's a different context, or C, we just, we're not wired to do it, but we try it anyway. And so this, like Jason said, is not a copy and paste. It's really discovering the flavoring, the seasoning of what God has already put in front of you. I, I tell one story in the book, um, kind of a personal history story that was a, a painful lesson I learned as a kid. And that was the year the Air Jordans came out. Um, <laughs> my mom took me out shopping for back to school. And if you read the book, you know the story. But I was all excited about getting those shoes, you know. And so we went to the shoe store and I wasn't much on fashion, but I knew like the Jordans were the thing. And so the red, white and black shoe, I took it to the counter. It was magically in the budget. My mom didn't have a lot of money to spend in my family. I mean, my, my parents didn't budget a lot of money for spending on clothing and things. I bought those shoes, took them home. The next day I wore them to school and the kids were all quick to point out that I bought the bootleg version. I didn't buy the Nike version, but something that looked exactly like it. They copied the pattern. And, uh, and so the lesson that I learned there was that you can't do the bootleg version. And I think our tendency sometimes is to go and look at someone like Adam Weber or Jacob Armstrong or Matt Miofsky or, you know, some of our, our superheroes in uh, the United Methodist church who are planting and doing it well and say, well, I'm just going to go home and do exactly that. And then they end up buying into the bootleg version. So you got to figure out what's authentic to your community. Absolutely. So what are some of your tips? I know that you, you talk about that, like learning that local flavor. Um, but for the church planter or pastor out there who's like, okay, well, how do I know what would work in my context? Um, they should definitely buy the book, but what are some general tips that they could start doing now? Roz, do you want to start? Yeah, I'll start. Um, it's knowing your why. And we don't want to give too much of the book away, but it, it's, knowing, it's knowing your why. And your why is very different than your what. A lot of times uh, what we do is we think we're putting on worship on Sunday morning, but we forget the why. Or we just want to start another church, but why? You know. And so we're, we ask people to really uh, just hone in and get behind their motives a little bit. You're not starting a quote unquote contemporary service because that's what's going to attract younger people and it's going to be different than your organ music. You know, what's the why? And and helping congregations and leaders see that, then they start to really get a framework for, okay, um, here here are my motives. Here's why we're doing it. And I don't know about you, but when you've cast vision to people, uh, they get stuck on what a lot of times, but if you just tell them why, it it can really just settle people's nerves, especially in the midst of change. There's a great um, Michael Jr. clip that we show in the seminar version of this. I'm sure you've probably seen it, and if you yes, haven't, seen it, Amazing Grace video. Yes, yes. Yeah. So the guy sings Amazing Grace. He says he's a musical director. And he sings a, a, a great but very stoic version of that song. And then 
Michael Jr. says, I want you to sing the version that, you know, your dad just just passed away, got shot in the back as a kid. And now I want you to sing, give me the hood version is what he says. And what he sings the second time brings the house down. And he said, you know, this time he knew why he, before he knew what he was doing. Now he knows why he was doing it. And we have just seen people have a really hard time overcoming um, strategically misplaced um, pieces whenever you're putting together a new faith community or even trying to start something new. I mean, Rachel, you were kind enough to talk to us for the book and we learned a lot from what you experienced at the gathering and not fully understanding ahead of time what was going to happen between what exists and what, what was to come. And so another question that we talk a lot about uh, in the book, but also in our seminar is to kind of assess the relationship between what exists, what's already in place and the new thing. And what that might mean for a planter is um, what exists in the denominational structure you're in uh, or, or even what you bring with you from your history. You know, the, the church experience that you grew up in, what is the relationship between what we started with and what we're trying to create? And, and knowing that relationship and, and determining it up front can save you a lot of heartache down the road. Absolutely. I thought that was so valuable. And I wish that I had had this book to read 10 years ago when I was starting out. And I'm like, but wait, time out. Our why isn't the same. We're not really communicating. This could be problematic. You know, it could have been months and months and months of just, you know, anxiety or tension that that did not have to exist. So that's what I love about this book. And I, I totally agree. You guys don't give a recipe like do X, Y, and Z, and you'll be franchising, you know, for the next 20 years with everyone wanting to do what you're doing. But you do offer so many practical tips for things to look at, like look at your location or look at your music, look at your worship. You know, you had this really great, um, uh, was it Tony Campolo quote about how like the root of yeah. the word contemporary um, uh, is actually temporary and the number of churches that are not willing to shift or adjust what worship looks like. Um, You know, what advice would you give to an established church that is like, but wait, worship is working well for, or even a church plant, you know, where it's maybe starting to plateau and it's, you know, 10, 12 years in and you're not doing anything new. Um, Is worship really temporary? Do you have to keep changing and innovating in some way or not? Yeah, well, uh, I can respond first. And Roz, if you want to throw in some additional thoughts, um, feel free. Um, You know, for me, it really goes back to what I used to hear Mike Slaughter say when I worked with him at Gingosburg Church, is that there's a difference between the wine and the wineskin. And so we have to remain true to our core values, but our cultural expression of those core values always has to change. If, I mean... I think we have to remember that we all fell in love with the church that we grew up in at some point. And it, and at the time it was probably more in the context that we lived in and spoke to us in our experience. And we can't do church the same way we did, you know, 20 years ago and expect people to have the same reaction or to fall in love with it. That's why a new recipe is, is required. And it doesn't mean that you're throwing out everything. It also doesn't mean that every week, you're changing the recipe completely. I mean, I tell the churches that I coach that it may be that you'd have a six week series and four of the weeks are almost identical as far as the worship order goes, but maybe two of them, but it's not like a rule. 
but maybe two of them, you do some extra special things that really elevate that and, and make it. It's not that we're trying to create a new template for worship, but how do we breathe life in so that it feels like we're doing new things uh, for, for purposeful reasons? Again, knowing your why, asking why are we doing this or why are we, why are we using this metaphor or this creative moment or this tactile thing that we're holding? Um, and, and even why would we change the order of worship up this week? Roz, other, other thoughts on that? Yeah, it's keeping people guessing as well. Um, how many times do we come into worship, especially in some atmospheres, even new church starts or large churches, and you know what to expect all the time? It's very monotonous. Even though the quality's high, maybe the production value's high, but it's almost predictable. Um, so I would really put those worship leaders, pastors, and, and other folks aside and just say, um, how are we being, uh, you know, we're talking about, Jason mentioned the new wine skins, or, you know, you have to have new wine in new wine skins, not old wine, but new wine. Um, and so just asking them the question, how are you making worship fresh, flavorful, uh, tasteful for, for the folks? Um, in, in my in my creative worship seminar, I call this uh, bringing back a sense of intrigue to worship because most of our worship isn't really very intriguing. There's no sense of excitement or mystery because, you know, we're going to do the same thing we did last week. We're going to sing different songs. We're going to read a different scripture. We're going to hear a different message. But it's going to be exactly like I, I will often joke. Spoiler alert. Last week's worship is exactly the same as this week's worship. I mean, if when we have friends that go to movies before us, we don't want to know the plot before we go to see the movie, right? But the problem is, even in, as Ross said, even in really great worship with excellent preaching and music and media, sometimes it's so predictable. There's not a lot of excitement about what we're going to experience because it's the same over and over and over again. Yeah, which is why, like, you know, speaking of the importance of why, when I was planting a church, we never had bulletins because we were dedicated to really connecting to and caring for the environment. And so why print off hundreds of bulletins every week that will just be recycled and are so temporary? But another added benefit we found was that people aren't looking to see what's next and yeah. expecting that same rhythm. So every Sunday they came in, sometimes there would be no chairs and just stations or whatever. And, and um, I was amazed by like, like the anxiety and the initial hesitancy I saw in the faces of so many, not just our more senior citizens, but the younger folks too. And, and I'll never forget, there was one, um, the first Sunday in January, two years ago, we did the West, a Wesleyan covenant service, right? Wesley renewal service. But, um, we did it all with stations and folks, it was the first time post merger where we had, you know, half of us were in our 70s, 80s, and 90s, that we'd invited them to participate in a service that was just all station-based. But there was a nine-year-old woman at the end of the service um, just weeping. And she said, mm. this has never meant so much to me. And they were doing all like the tangible interactions with the covenant prayer that were broken up. And so it was just a reminder to me that, yes, like even with things like worship, doesn't matter what kind of church you're at. I mean, we were in a sanctuary with pews and we made it happen. So there's really no excuse for not learning that local flavor and trying to bring intrigue back into worship. What, what you said there reminded me of one of the interviews that I included in the book. I talked to uh, uh, Sarah Heath, who's out in California, 
And she is really, um, her recipe is really about doing generational ministry. She says, you know, I'm not trying to do the most cutting edge worship. I'm trying to do worship maybe that, that my existing congregation would love, but done in a way that new folks would appreciate. And she said that we are intentional in the worship that we do about explaining what's happening, not in a expository sort of way, but, but in a, an artful way. And she said uh, she had an older woman from her congregation who also had a moment similar to what you're describing when she had described what the, um, the symbolism of the, the light of Christ and the candle in the room meant. And she said, I've been going to church my whole life, and I didn't know until today what that meant. And it just brings so much more meaning to this experience. And so, you know, it's, it's again, it's not necessarily about doing something that's so cutting edge, but how do we, how do we breathe new life into it? Absolutely. Well, along those lines of intergenerational worship or just what worship will look like in the coming weeks, could we talk for, you know, just five minutes or so and pick your brains? Um, Because Raj, you're currently leading a church that's doing online streaming on Sundays, right? And Jason, with your media background, uh, what should churches be looking to or embracing as a way of applying everything from your book to this um, social distancing era that we're experiencing? Yeah, from a pastor's perspective, and Jason can tell us more about the technicality of it all, but um, some people don't have the advantage of having a highly produced team, all the technology. We don't even have a building. So uh, what my positioning was, you know, my thought process was, what can we do that's different than anybody else? And what do we have that is a resource that maybe is underutilized. So we thought, Hey, let's use my house. Um, let's gather small group. Um, we'll have breakfast. It's incarnational. It's from our living room to yours. And people really love that because everybody else seemed the larger churches, which I'm not putting them down. It, it is what it is. They were doing the pre-recorded, but then we're going to stream it quote unquote live three times and we just did ours live with mess ups and anything else. And it worked out beautifully. Uh, but we wanted to set ourselves apart and utilize what we already had. Uh, we'd already been doing Facebook live. Um, you know, so we just incorporated some of the easy elements that we had been doing for a while. So from a pastor's perspective, in terms of worship, uh, that's what I would encourage folks to do use what they have instead of doing nothing at all. And be innovative outside of Sunday, right? Like share the idea of what's happening. I love, love, love your idea for what you're doing tomorrow night on a non-Sunday. Yeah, we're doing a virtual dance party kind of deal on Zoom. Uh, our, our drummer is a DJ. And so we set up a Zoom call, um, a video chat, and people are going to jump on there. Uh, this morning, we had one of our staff people showing folks how to do Bible journaling and making kind of their own journal if they wanted to do that. We've been doing uh, daily devotional tips. We're having evening vespers with one of our worship leaders who is just an expert pianist. And so he's leading that. Um, My wife will be sharing some devotional time. And then we have morning moments with Mo, who's our other worship leader. And he starts off the morning just kind of doing some worship and, and also some prayer. I love that. I love that everything's different and that, Raj, you're not the one doing it all either. You know? no. And then I forgot to add, our children's person is giving tips 
to parents on how to structure their time with their kids and not be so overwhelmed with craziness and to be able to disciple their family, be realistic with their time and how to maximize it. Awesome. What's, what's so exciting to me about what Roz is doing and others that I have seen is that it would be very easy for us to try and just replicate the recipe for a typical Sunday morning and just do church the way we've always done it. Um, you know, the potential for what's happening right now, as tough as it is, uh, is for ministry to really grow in, in positive ways. You know, while we're supposed to be uh, doing social distancing, it's not social isolation. And, uh, you know, there are folks that are going to feel more connected right now through what's happening at Mosaic and churches like it than maybe they've had, they have in a long time. So, um, you know, we always have to keep looking at, at tweaking our recipe. Uh, the things I would add to the, the conversation just for the churches who are thinking about this is to uh, remember just a lot of the tips I would offer around guest readiness. And that is um, you can't assume that people know anything when they come to your church for the first time. Uh, so if they're turning, tuning into your broadcast, I think it's really important. And most people get this naturally, but some don't. Uh, it's important to introduce everybody that's leading that experience. Uh, it's important because uh, you you might have multiple participants in it, and uh, I could be confused about who the pastor or who the worship leader is or whatever if, if there are no introductions. Um, I also think that that hearing who those people are provide great points of connection when it's over. So, you know, if Callie um, is leading a, a women's ministry and she says, I'm Callie Picardo and I lead the women's ministry here at, you know, Mosaic or whatever, it gives me the opportunity or my wife, the opportunity afterwards to connect with her. So uh, to, to remember that. And then I also think introductions are important because they provide a level of authority, you know, and, and, I always say in, in worship, uh, this isn't so much for, uh, for streaming, but, but also safety. Like if I'm a children's ministry person uh, and I, I say who I am when the kids are going to be with me, uh, there's a, a authority and safety that's brought to that, um, which doesn't so much apply to, to now. But uh, I think those things are really important. The other thing I would uh, suggest is that we have uh, many rituals that we do in our churches that um, whether you're traditional or non-traditional, uh, you have your weekly rituals and those things, it's really easy to have a shorthand about that. And if somebody's never been with you before or they're worshiping with you, uh, you can't assume they know. So it's always a good idea to explain, here's what we're doing right now. I was just at a church a couple of weeks ago that said, now, what do we all say? And I'm like, I don't know. What do we all say? I've never been here before. You know, that there's these responses. So just uh, clue your, your, your viewing audience into what is happening. Um, a couple other just last thoughts for you on this is uh, even though we are a largely digital culture, uh, having some sort of a downloadable um, PDF or something like that, that if I'm a note taker or I want to reflect later or whatever, that's a really good thing to have. And then also digital giving. Uh, we don't have to, I mean, I think a lot of people are afraid if we're asking for offering over the internet or whatever, how are people going to take that? But uh, a lifestyle of giving is part of the Christian experience. It's part of being a Jesus follower and I can't live fully into it unless I'm able to give. So um, I think it's a good idea to 
think about that. So there are, there are digital giving platforms out there that will allow you to, to take offering along with uh, what you're doing. So that may have been a long, long rambling thing, but it's just the Corona speaking to my head right now. I don't know. I love it. It's all good. It's golden because we need to work together and figure out how to connect in meaningful ways, um, practically um, and spiritually as well. So uh, you guys are incredible. So if people want your book, where do they get it? When will it be released? We need to know. The the book is actually um, available for order now. Our uh, We had a little... Uh, our, our um, publisher um, discovered that we couldn't do a pre-order on Amazon. So when he sent it to Amazon, they started selling it right away. So our, we're considering our official launch date, April 1st, but you can get the book right now. And you, if you go to franchise2, the letter 2, franchise2dive.com, you can order it from there. Uh, we're about to post some interviews with planters from all over the country that we've talked to. Uh, there's, there's more there, so you can check it out. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. I'm so grateful. And um, thank you to our listeners for joining in today. Field Preachers podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.